going to be Jim Jordan week on Today in Ohio. He's in the news in a big way. It's the first thing we'll be talking about on this episode of the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi to start off the week. Let's get to it. After losing to Steve Scalise and seemingly headed back to his committee hearings, Ohio's Jim Jordan rose again Friday as a major candidate for the U.S. US House Speaker. Lisa, a lot of moving parts on this. Where do we stand right now? Yeah, well, there, there's kind of a limbo today. Um, but on Friday, Jim Jordan did get the nomination against last-minute candidate Austin Scott, a Republican from Georgia. That vote was 124 to 81. And then Jordan called a second secret ballot later on Friday. It improved a little bit. It was 152 to 55, but that's far short than the 217 votes he will need to become the next House Speaker. And according to sources uh, reported by CBS News, there are about 10 to 20 Republican holdouts that just aren't going to vote for Jordan, and it's not clear that he's ever going to change their mind. Tuesday, they expect to have the first of perhaps many votes on the House floor, so we'll see how this goes. I was surprised, and well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, in reading different stories about this over the weekend, one talked about how he's playing the bully. There's like, you either join me or you're against me, which is really not the way that you want the house to run. I I still think this is unthinkable. I mean, this guy was, as has been described by the people that ran the hearings, the closest to Donald Trump as Trump planned the insurrection to overthrow our government. He he's a destroyer. Brent Larkin had a perfect column putting this into perspective over the weekend. Jim Jordan never builds anything. He never does anything that's positive. He just crushes things and destroys things and and attacks left and right. That is not what the House should be. You keep waiting. And I've seen stories about this, too, for the Dave Joyce's of the world to reach out to some friendly Democrats and say, let's pick somebody that's going to get things done. Get rid of the nut jobs on the far right and far left and build something in the center. I don't know if they don't do that, that they'll come up with a House speaker, because I do think, look, if, if Dave Joyce votes for Jim Jordan, you know there's going to be a Democratic candidate that runs against him saying, do you really want a guy who's such a coward he voted for Jim Jordan? Because Jim Jordan is not what Lake County and that and Jaga County are about. So I would think that there are people like Dave Joyce that are worried about the vulnerability it creates if they go with this guy. And of course, this is a secret ballot, so we don't know who voted against him. And obviously, there are others who are going to hold the line, and hopefully Dave Joyce is among them. But, you know, people are issuing dire warnings. I mean, Jordan got the... uh, endorsement of former President Donald Trump to become the next speaker. And of course, he's Trump's, you know, right hand man and is implicated pretty heavily in the January 6th insurrection. Right. I look, eventually they're going to call the roll. So we will know which of the representatives, particularly those in Ohio, vote for Jim Jordan. I do think in any district where there is the ability for people to sway, you remember his district largely voted um, against issue one in August, which surprised everybody because it's heavily read that, that if people like Joyce don't stand up and say, no, no, this won't stand, it could mean their days in Congress are numbered. A lot to happen this week. We'll be talking about it on Today in Ohio. Who is Bernie Moreno? 
Laura, it's a simple question with a complex answer. Andrew yeah. Tobias did a profile this weekend. What did it say? Yeah, he wanted to answer this question. And Moreno's kind of an enigma, especially to voters who have to choose a Republican Senate candidate next spring. And that's including from among better known Secretary of State, State Frank LaRose and State Senator Matt Dolan. And that's even though Marino has basically run for this job before when Rob Portman stepped down. He dropped out when J.D. Vance got Trump's endorsement. And Trump is probably going to play another big role here. But this he does seem like a bunch of contradictions. So Marino is an elite Colombian immigrant. He's a wildly successful car salesman. He made millions of dollars discerning and delivering what wealthy car buyers want, including very personal touches. He's a guy that Cleveland leaders banked on to make Cleveland the blockchain capital of the world and then abandon the idea. He was once known for diversity, tolerance, and community building, and now is a hardline Trump supporter. So yeah, wrap that up in one package and you have an idea of why it's so hard to understand who he is and what he would stand for if elected. I was impressed that Andrew got people to talk on the record about how they felt almost the betrayal of who mm -hmm. Bernie Moreno was when he was an active participant in Cleveland discussions and who he is as a candidate. There was one award he received for his the way his companies were accepting leader in LGBTQ issues. And now they're embarrassed. They said that the award put a stain on the organization based on what he's become, and especially in the TV ads he had the last time he ran. It was good to see people on the record talking about that. We all know that. And Moreno himself, what did yeah. he say? How, what he said, percentage? I lost 85% of my friends. And when I say I lost 85% of my friends, these are people who will no longer return my calls and talk to me. But so that's what happens when you betray yeah. who you are. These people sat in meeting after meeting with him, participating in discussions about how to solve Cleveland's problems. Mm -hmm. Everything that identified Bernie Moreno was the guy they thought they knew. And then he turns around and he's somebody completely different. Of course, they're going to look at you and say, well, was it all a lie? Right. You know, was it fiction? Was I not really dealing with the person I thought I was? What's his response to that? That he has evolving views that tie back to his, his business career. But you're right. I mean, I was just thinking he was appointed to the Metro Health Board by Armin Budish, a Democrat who actually thought about asking him to be his chief of staff. So that's how close he was to, you know, county government and Democrats and and doing something good for the community. And then COVID hit. Remember, he made the headlines then and. Yeah, he's saying that he's just come around and he's evolving, but he was calling out illegals in his ads in 2021, saying that they're coming to take your job while bringing drugs and God knows what else into your neighborhood. So this isn't just evolving. This feels like a very deliberate uh, dog whistle to a certain type of voter. Yeah, I it, 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 I it was a good story in that it laid it out. I should point out that we did at one point, I think it was 20... 14 or 2015, we took him to the gridiron dinner. And I actually, when I was doing that dual role as president, served on a board with him for a while. And I had the same experience. What came out of his mouth during his campaign was not the guy that I thought I knew when I was talking to him more. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This is my favorite story of the weekend, Layla. Why are the people trying to defeat the abortion amendment on the November ballot pretending that Ohio's heartbeat bill does not exist? 
Well, such a huge portion of voters are pro-choice and see the heartbeat law as public policy from the outer fringe of conservative politics. So anti-issue one campaigners are, it seems, trying to pull the wool over those folks' eyes. In campaign communications, canvassing events and television appearances, groups working to defeat state issue one have been telling voters the abortion rights amendment is unnecessary because abortion is legal in Ohio through 22 weeks. And that's true, but only for the moment. That messaging ignores that Governor DeWine signed the heartbeat bill in January of 2019, banning abortion when a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is around six weeks into pregnancy. That law was enforced for 82 days after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe in in June of 2022, but it's been on hold for over a year because of an ongoing legal challenge. If that challenge fails, the ban on abortions after six weeks would would return. So while that's playing out in the court, the state law has reverted to the previous abortion cutoff at 22 weeks. And anti-issue one canvassers are spinning that in their favor. Not only that, but it kind of sounds like they're trying to make it sound as if issue one would limit reproductive rights by rendering the current 22-week standard unenforceable. Canvassers for Students for Life told Ohio State University students last weekend that voting against issue one quote, would keep abortion accessible up to 20 to 21 weeks and six days while not mentioning the heartbeat law or the court battle around it. And they're accusing the pro-issue one campaigners of fear mongering <laughs> and spreading lies about the availability of abortion services in Ohio. I mean, don't we always say this is how the right operates? They accuse others of the bad thing they're doing <laughs> just yeah. to kind of spin your head around. Well, the anti-issue one people, they're telling nothing but lies. We have another story coming out that addresses some of the individual lies and why it's fiction. And I guess you have to understand it because they know that the majority of Ohioans want this. So, so one, they pretend a heartbeat bill doesn't exist when it does, and it would be a six-week ban very soon after, I suspect. If, if issue one were to fail, the Supreme Court would quickly rule and the heartbeat bill would be the law of the land. And they, they also are trying to say, and this is a bogus argument, and it was partly what Dave Yost kind of did, that that this is goes too far, that that issue one doesn't take us back to Roe v. Wade. It creates this whole new Wild West of, you know, readily available abortions, anybody who wants one, no parents or anything else. And that's not really true either. That, that basically what, what issue one does is make abortion about a, a health decision between a woman and her doctor with some guardrails. And and I think the voters get it. And that's why the anti-issue one people are just telling big time lies because they got nothing else. So they're hoping to get to it. Laura, you were sitting at home when somebody knocked on your door and was telling you lies. Yeah. One of our health reporters had the same thing. They come up and they just tell lies, not realizing they're talking well, to educated they didn't know. voters. It's funny because I was working outside on the porch and this woman said, are you Laura Johnston? And I was like, yes. And I actually told her who I was. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sign anything. And because I thought she was... <laughs> the other side because you know the name protect women ohio is a misnomer anyway but she she proceeded to tell me that abortion was legal in ohio and i said well that's only because the heartbeat law is on hold and she looked at me like i was growing horns like i don't know (laughs) that she understood and then she tried to tell me you know that 
that my daughter was going to go have an abortion without me. And I was like, well, that's very much in flux. And I just feel like <laughs> they are just throwing stuff out. I don't know how much each person knows that they're spreading mischaracterizations. There was another thing in our bulletin at church that <laughs> this one I could not believe I sent to Rick Ruin and our statehouse editor said that issue one, if it passes, will allow teachers who already have too much influence over our kids to take our kids without us to get sterilized. I was like, what? what? That was oh, in your church bulletin? Lord. That was in my church bulletin. Oh, my god! Wait, gosh. I thought our story, this story, though, said that the Catholic that Conference of Ohio. That was an earlier one that was in September. This was just one guy. This wasn't oh. the con- But it's just like, what are you throwing We're, at the wall? The, the problem, though. They can say whatever they want. I mean, people have made up their minds. We can see it. People aren't reading our abortion stories in anywhere near the numbers they're reading the marijuana stories for which they still have questions. We've been debating abortion in this country for so many decades. I just don't believe there are many people who didn't decide immediately upon hearing this was on the ballot how they're going to vote and the antis can flail all they want. They're running up against the majority. The most dastardly thing was what Matt Huffman and Frank LaRose tried to do, which was to raise the percentage of voters you would need to get a pass to a point where you couldn't. But voters saw through that in August and said, no way, and shoved it down their throats. So I think, look, this is an overreach. There was an overreach to get Roe v. Wade overturned because it created this move in the states to put it into constitutions. And now the heartbeat bill is an overreach. If, if we had a reasonable abortion law in Ohio, maybe this constitutional amendment wouldn't be on the ballot. But the far right nut jobs in the legislature who've been elected because of gerrymandering went too far. And this is the result. The people are taking control. It was interesting to me in the story that some on the vote no side disagree with this messaging around the campaign. They think, but but I mean, it's like not for the reason that we're talking about, not because it's dishonest, but because they think that they're selling out. They're going too far to appeal to centrist voters and selling out their anti-abortion principles by suggesting that abortion is fine before a certain point. Um, I thought that was... <laughs> yeah. It was, a, it was a great story. Really good, insightful stuff that you're not going to find anywhere else. Courtesy of Laura Hancock and Andrew Tobias. Read it on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the loophole in the regulation of electricity rates that reporter Jake Zuckerman discovered that is making suckers out of apartment dwellers and many others, Lisa? This was an eye-opening story. In a September ruling, the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio denied a request from American Electric Power to declare a sub-metering company as a public utility. And they're talking about Nationwide Energy Partners. It's a sub-metering company that operates in Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus. They have about 34,000 customers, I'm using air quotes here, mostly in communal buildings like apartments, condos, and manufactured home communities. And they also, you know, sub-meter gas and water as well. But PUCO in their ruling says that NEP is an agent of the landlord and is not a public utility. So the landlord in this equation is the customer, not the tenants. So in this situation, landlords are paid an umph 
paid an upfront monthly charge and residuals from NEP to handle the submeter accounts that are behind the master meter for the for the property. So Mark Witt, who's an attorney and an NEP customer, says who tried unsuccessfully to get the Ohio Supreme Court to regulate these submetering companies. Um, he says that non-regulation leads to price gouging. He said that he has a condo that he rarely uses. Um, he said that his bills jumped to $400 a month at this rarely used condo when NEP took over. And he also said bills would arrive after the due date with a $50 late fee already attached. And he says that Puka was asleep at the wheel about this. So Ashley Brown, we also talked to her. She's a former Puka commissioner. And she says that most submeter companies don't add any value. It's just a way to scrape money right off the top. And although Puko said they share the concerns about submetering companies with AEP, and despite the ruling, they did order AEP to request customer or um, rather consumer protections like price caps, disconnect limits, and tenant disclosure in a legal filing within 90 days. So that can be considered. The idea that it's the middleman that's to blame gives the apartment owners and out. It's the apartment owners that create this. They are the ones that hire these middlemen that then gouge the customers. So the landlords are the ones that are that are really doing the bad deed here. The landlords could very easily hire a company to manage the electric rates and put restrictions on them. You're not going to gouge our residents. The, the rates can be set this way, and, and this is your little bit of profit, and we all live happily ever after. But they're getting money from this, clearly. If they're hiring mm-hmm. these companies, there's kickbacks going to them, and that should be stopped. There shouldn't be a profit motive for the landlords to gouge their residents by hiring the middleman. Um, it's really, you're right, it was an eye-opening story, and it's on the legislature to fix this. Well, but in the legislature, in this last session, Senator Andrew Brenner, a Republican from Powell, introduced a bill to declare submeterers not a public utility and therefore unregulated. He said that's a private company operating on private land. That's not a public utility. And when he was asked by a Democratic colleague, Bill DeMora of Columbus, about the lack of protections for people to fall behind that fall behind on bills, uh, he replied, Brenner replied, well, they should pay their bills and reduce their electricity. Electricity usage. I, look, I get the idea that, that that it's not a utility. I, I, you know, I can see them making the argument it's not a utility, but that doesn't mean they can't put some restrictions in. They could pass a disclosure law so that when you're going to sign up at the apartment, they have to disclose in big type that you're about to get gouged on electric bills. They could put rules in for what landlords are allowed and not allowed to do when it comes to passing on these electric charges. So so declaring it a utility or not a utility is not the only way to protect people. This is just another example of how we stick it to the poorest of the poor. These are the people that can least afford these kinds of charges. You don't pay it. I don't pay it. But people who can't afford it are forced to pay it. And it's wrong. The legislature should protect people from that kind of abuse. You're listening to Today in Ohio. By the time people turn to the Greater Cleveland Food Bank for meals, they're in financial distress. Food is not all they need. Laura, how is the food bank changing up to help these folks out in other areas? 
This is a fresh take to address all of a family's need. And more than a dozen agencies have come together to create this one-stop shop of social services where you can find help for hunger, employment, housing, health care, 14 services under one roof. And it reads like a who's who of Cleveland Philanthropies, Legal Aid Society, the Benjamin Rose Institute on Aging, United Way, Shoes and Clothes for Kids, the Diaper Bank, Metro Health, College Now. So people don't have to travel. They don't have to set up another appointment. They don't have to figure out another bureaucracy. They can get help right away. This is this is really cool. There's a computer lab that's operated by Cuyahoga Community College, a family waiting room operated by Family Connections. So, you know, if you're meeting with all these places, your kid doesn't have to get dragged along. And the goal is to help people move towards food security out of poverty and where they won't need the food bank anymore. Yeah, it's a good idea. They just didn't have the space before. Is it because of the new building that they're able to accommodate this? Yes. So they spent $13 million on renovations and staffing just on this new partners. And it's going to open November 2nd in the former distribution building on South Waterloo Road. And this is all part of a much bigger project where they built an entirely new distribution center not far away where all the food is housed. And this is going to be open 830 to 5 every day up to 7 on Tuesday and Wednesdays and every other Saturday. So hopefully people will be able to fit it into their schedules. Let me ask you this, though. This is a nonprofit agency that has been dedicated for years to helping people who are hungry, and now it's going to be provided all sorts of social services. Don't we all pay pretty big taxes to Cuyahoga County to handle the social services? Why is the food bank having to do this instead of the county, which gets our money to do this? I mean, that's a really good question. I'm sure the county actually supports some of these agencies. Obviously, our money goes to Cuyahoga Come at, we have a tax and there's a renewal up for Tri-C. But I think it's just the convenience of it because if you if you go through each individual agency, it, that's the headache, right? This The whole new part of here is making it easy, one stop, so that people who don't know how to navigate all of the bureaucracy or might not have a car to get around, it'll be easier to do it. That said, you're right. Mm-hmm. I hope they get grants from the county because they fund themselves on – the harvest for hunger and the donations that people make every month. I just don't get why the county, if this is such a great idea to have one-stop shopping for social services, why the county doesn't do that because they're the ones that are supposed to be providing the social services. It seems like we're, we're creating a, a new bureaucracy here to do what we already pay somebody else to do. And that it really speaks to the failings of Cuyahoga County in providing these services. Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Good for the food bank, but it does raise questions. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have been asking on this podcast why Cuyahoga County, which has a meals crisis in the jail, has not sought the advice of Brandon Krastowski. He's the guy who has received international acclaim for his innovative food service business that is tied to corrections. A listener took up the cause and asked Krastowski, and he told her he's been trying to talk to the county about this for years. Layla, what gives here? Why aren't they using this guy? Krastowski runs Edwin's, of course. This is a classic French restaurant on Shaker Square, and it's grown to include an entire campus in that neighborhood, all serving the Edwin's mission. He runs a bakery, a butcher shop, two restaurants, and he offers housing and a whole bunch of amenities for his staff and trainees who come through his program. And indeed, Krastowski confirmed to reporter Lucas DiPrilli that he has been trying to have a conversation with the county for years 
about a better way to feed jail inmates while also giving them marketable skills, just like the, the, the people who go through the Edwins program. And the idea that he says he would pitch to the county if he were given the chance to do it would involve using fresh food and raw ingredients and bringing inmates into the kitchen to learn culinary techniques. Currently, the county is under contract with that company called Trinity, which we've written a lot about. They they pretty much seek to feed inmates for as little as possible, $1.30 a meal, I think is what, what they pay. And they dish out total, totally inedible slop that drives inmates to rely on the commissary, which, wouldn't you know it, is run by Trinity's parent company. So the county recently approved a one-year extension to that contract while they supposedly put out an RFP that could churn up some options. When asked why the county has never sought out Krastowski's expertise or advice on the food service dilemma at the, at the jail, the county said, he's welcome to respond to the RFP. <laughs> so <laughs> meanwhile, Krastowski's ideas are really in high demand elsewhere. When Lucas reached him, he was on his way out of town to work with officials in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, where he's helping them with programming for formerly incarcerated people. And in Maricopa County, Arizona, they've been using his his cooking program for jail inmates, which is like a tablet-based program. And he, he told Lucas, I fly across the country trying to help people make this connection. But right here in my own backyard, it's not like the phone is ringing off the hook for yeah. the county jail to get better. Well, I, it is mind-boggling. That's why we've been asking about it. He has done extraordinary things. I mean, he really is one of the more visionary people we have in Northeast Ohio. Mm-hmm. The jail meal problem is not new. It's been a problem for quite some time. And the county has had plenty of time to bring him in and draw on his expertise. You would think the county council would have invited him in, said, hey, let's talk. We got a crisis here. Chris Ronane was running for, for his job a year ago, knowing the jail was a nightmare, could have done lots to prepare for this. The idea that Brandon Krastowski is saying, I'm ready, willing and able to talk to them. And they're saying, yeah, submit the RFP tells you everything you need to know about the dysfunction of our county government. The people that are supposed to solve these problems have an answer, potential answer, right in their hometown, and they aren't even talking to them. Right. Krastowski said he had an informal conversation, sounded like a chat, with with, uh, County Executive Chris Ronane. And beyond that, nothing. Crickets. Okay, but think about this. It's so bad that the guards have put out to the public, we think there could be a riot. The food here is so awful, the inmates could riot. You're Chris Ronane. You're the county executive. You're trying to find a solution. You're not going to at least invite him over to have a formal chat and talk about the way to go. It's mind-boggling, Layla. I just cannot understand how this government is functioning. This is a huge lapse. I, 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 either either they're not thinking innovatively and broadly and in big picture ways, or or maybe Krastowski is kind of intimidating to them. I mean, he did run for. <laughs> ma- I mean, think about it. He ran for mayor of Cleveland, right? I mean, maybe he poses a, a you know political threat in their uh, eyes, and I, uh, and you know how they are. 
fiefdoms yeah, and, and ineffective, dysfunctional, <laughs> not, not not visionary. It, this is this is a huge problem with county government. The fact that they will not have a conversation with this guy tells you everything you need to know. Meanwhile, let's remember they spent sixty six million dollars in slush funds. Well, I wanted to know if they've asked the juvenile court about their meal provider because I just heard that Pernell Jones visited recently and like looked at what was being served. And he's like, "That's the food for the kids in the detention center." They said, "Yeah," and he's like, "Can I get that?" And he had some pulled chicken and found it delicious. So, I mean, so they're doing that, I guess, better in the juvenile court, oh, juvenile detention center. Well, but Krastowski has had a role there, right? The story said that he has actually worked with the juvenile. Well, then that would make sense. You're listening to Today in Ohio. PNC Bank is a significant employer and contributor to Greater Cleveland. So a big layoff has ramifications. Lisa, what do we know about those losing their PNC jobs? Well, we don't know a whole lot, and even though we tried to get the details. Pittsburgh-based PNC Bank is laying off 4% of its workforce. The layoffs actually began on October 6th, according to the company's online quarterly earnings report. It was confirmed by Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, but few details on how many jobs are going to be cut and where, and there's no regional breakdown at all. Some who say that their PNC employees have gone on social media saying that they've been laid off. PNC employs about 60,000 people, 9,250 right here in Ohio. The layoffs are expected to save PNC $325 million next year, and it's part of an overall effort to cut their expenses by $725 million. Their third quarter net income was about $1.5 billion and that was up slightly from the second quarter, but down from the third quarter of last year. And PNC officials in their earnings report say they're expecting a mild recession in the first half of next year. Well, if you're going to lay a bunch of people off, it's pretty much predictable. You're going to predict financial hard times ahead. I don't know if that holds any water whatsoever. I, I was disappointed because ever since PNC bought National City Bank years ago, they've tried to be a very transparent and solid company. The fact that we had to learn about these layoffs from social media, I think we saw it on Reddit, uh, is, is disappointing. You would think that they would come clean and say, hey, we do expect some tough times. We're trying to be responsible, trying to do the right thing. It's going to affect this many people in the Cleveland area, this many people in the Pittsburgh area, but it hasn't. It's been pulling teeth to try and get it, which I was disappointed in. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and we're not going to get to the rest of our stories because we have finished the half hour. They'll save for tomorrow. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to Today in Ohio. 